We have a very solemn and difficult topic to discuss this morning. As you know, we've been going through the book of 1 Samuel, and in 1 Samuel we have been tracking with the characters as we go along, and recently we've spent most of our time focusing on David. But this morning we return to Saul. Last week we looked at David on the run in Philistia, running away from Saul, and there was a big story that covered chapter 27, 29, and 30 of David being away from Saul. And if you remember, he was almost conscripted to have to go and fight against his own people. Well, this morning we pick up the story, but from Saul's point of view and from Saul's side of things, and this covers chapter 28 and 31. Now, the reason why I said it's a solemn and difficult topic is because 1 Samuel 31, so I say uh, 28 and 31, 1 Samuel 31 narrates Saul's suicide. And this morning it seems right for us to spend some time not avoiding that issue but talking about it. And so this morning we want to think about the subject of suicide, which is indeed a heavy and difficult topic. Let me say right at the outset, for many of you, this will hit a nerve. Perhaps there's been a loved one, someone close to you who has committed suicide. I want you to know at the beginning, my heart grieves for you. It's a very painful and difficult thing to do, uh, to experience. And although my own experiences with friends who have committed suicide have been few and limited, and in many ways more distant, I do believe that God has something that he wants to say to you this morning. And the reason why we want to talk about this is not because I want you to have to relive painful memories or to bring up things that have been pushed down. That's not my intent at all. But the problem with suicide is it creates confusion. And my hope is, is that the truth of God's word, that God would speak to you today. Perhaps there are lingering effects or lingering questions that you have from the death of your loved one. Perhaps there are things that are still running through your brain and heart, and I think this is a chance for us to be able to talk about those in the context of what God has to say. I'm also aware that there are some here today who are contemplating suicide, or perhaps you know someone who is contemplating suicide in a very real way. I want you to know that the desire for death to end the pain of life is itself not wrong. But it can be a symptom that something else greater is going on. Some other problem is there. And while I myself may not be able to identify with the hopelessness that you're feeling right now, in fact, there may not be anybody who can truly identify in this room with the hopelessness that you're feeling. I want you to know that Jesus can. Yes. That in the Garden of Gethsemane, that Jesus said he was at the blackest hour, that the anguish and depression and discouragement that he was feeling was so overwhelming that the Bible tells us he would have preferred death. And so he sent me here this morning to deliver a message to you, a message of hope to tell you he's not forgotten about you, he's not lost you. And one of the problems with suicidal thoughts and feelings is that it is enmeshed with Satan's lies. And my prayer is this morning is that the truth of what God has to say in his word would help clear up the fog and brush away the lies. And that if you're here and you hear uh, something in your heart stirring or moving, know that it's not me, it's God. 
It's God speaking to you. And if he says anything to you during this next time, know that he sees you and that he's reaching out to you. Now, there are probably many here for whom suicide has no real emotional connection. You've not been in the depths of despair. You've not had a close loved one who's gone through that. Let me say thank God for that. I'm glad that you may not have been through that. But I do think there's something in what we have to say this morning that's actually of practical relevance for you today. That God has a warning for each of us to take away. So with this in mind, it's a hard topic. So let's spend a few minutes in prayer because I'm going to ask, this whole thing is gonna fall apart if it's me trying to advise you about this. This will work if God shows up and communicates a message of hope. So would you pray with me? And if you want, while I'm praying, if you want to pray for people around you, uh, maybe I know that there are people here who are struggling with this. And if that's not your struggle while I'm praying, maybe you want to pray as well that God's spirit would move in a powerful way. Let's pray. Father, we are here at the beginning of our time, not out of a perfunctory ritual, but Lord, we desperately need you. God, I imagine that there are things that you have arranged so that this is the Sunday that you're going to speak to someone. Lord, I know that there are people that you woke up this morning and that you brought you or perhaps were not even thinking about coming. Lord, I know that you allowed things to happen this week. Lord, perhaps even attempted or successful suicides. Lord God, knowing that this message was coming, and so, Lord, at the beginning, I'm praying that you would speak in a powerful way. Lord God, bring your truth. Lord, what do I know? What could I say? What could any of us say here? Lord, the blackness, the depth, the difficulty, it's too much for any of us, but it's not too much for you. Please, Lord, would you come? Would you speak? God, you are the God of truth. Let your truth be known because your truth will set us free. God, the lies of this world are too much. There is nothing that psychologists and philosophers and wise people and pastors could ever offer that could replace the truth that you give. Please, Lord, come and speak. And God, you're not only the God of all truth, you are the God of all grace. And God, we need your gracious presence here. Lord, your heart longs for your people in a way that we can't even imagine. God, would you come and show grace? Would you speak? Lord, I've already told them that if their heart stirs, that it's you, Lord, stir their hearts. God, only you can do this. God, give us insight, give us wisdom, help us, Lord. We're promising you the credit and the glory and we're acknowledging you at the beginning, in the middle and at the end. Lord, do this for your sake. Amen. I'd love for you to take a Bible and turn to 1 Samuel 31. 1 Samuel 31, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the rack in front of you or underneath your seat. In those Bibles, it's page 213, 213. While you're turning, let me tell you the story that'll get us up to 1 Samuel 31. As I said, last week we looked at David and Philistia and the Philistines were mustering for battle against the Israelites. Well, now we're just simply picking up the rest of the story, but this time from the Israelites side of things. Saul is getting his army together and the Philistines have gathered at Shunem. The Israelites have gathered at Mount Gilboa and they can see across the way to one another. And Saul sees the size of the Philistine encampment in the army and it says that he was absolutely petrified, that he was quaking with fear. Well, at this point, Saul is desperate. He knows that he's in deep trouble and so he tries to inquire of the Lord. He asks the God, what am I supposed to do here? But God doesn't answer him. 
And the reason God doesn't answer him is because Saul has never found his strength in the Lord like David did. He's never actually confessed that he's been far from God. He's never confessed the fact that he's been hunting David down, that he's done all of these things. He's never actually tried to get right with the Lord. In fact, all he wants to do is use God to get him out of this situation. And he thinks, hey, I've tried everything else. Why not give this a try? And God, who cannot be manipulated that way, refuses to respond. We can tell that Saul's interest is not really in restoring his relationship with the Lord because when God doesn't answer, Saul doesn't fall down on his knees and beg for mercy. What he does is he goes and finds a witch. He's like, well, if God's not going to help me, maybe Satan will. And he turns the demonic forces into a spiritist and says, I need help. And he asks the spiritist to bring Samuel, the prophet who has died, up. And some sort of vision or apparition of Samuel does come up. And Saul says to Samuel, I need some advice. And Samuel says to him, what in the world do you think I could tell you? I already told you, you have rejected God and you continue to reject God. And as a result, God has rejected you. And tomorrow you're going to go into battle and you and three of your sons are going to die. With that, Saul has no choice but to go to battle. And the battle begins the next day and we pick up the story in chapter 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons and they killed his sons Jonathan, Abinadab, and Melchishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. This tragic story of Saul's suicide allows us the opportunity to ask God four questions about suicide. First, where does the impulse for suicide come from? Second, why is suicide wrong? Third, is suicide an unpardonable sin? Can it be forgiven? And fourth, what are the implications for you and I today? First question, where does the impulse for suicide come from? Nobody wakes up one morning and decides today I'm going to end my life. Neither does Saul. We've been watching Saul's life for many years now. And if we go back at the beginning, Saul was a great and mighty king. The spirit was upon Saul and he did great things. But he has been in a slow, steady decline towards this point. And the wonderful thing about this passage and the reason why I feel like it's so important to talk about suicide from the life of Saul is Saul is the one person that we know the most about who commits suicide. We can actually follow what happened in his life. We can go back to the beginning when the downfall began and trace through and look for that thread, look for that idea, that seed that was planted that grew into be this tree of suicide. And as you remember, we've been walking through Saul's life Although he started out great in 1 Samuel 13, the descent began. 
And it began because he allowed his insecurities and his arrogance to overwhelm him. And in his conflicts with the Philistines, his insecurities and his arrogance began to dominate his actions. Then we saw that with the Amalekites, the fact that God had commanded Saul to approach battle and the outcome of battle in a certain way, and Samuel had communicated that clearly to him. But we read that Saul was more interested in pleasing people that he wasn't pleasing God, that he wanted everybody to like him and he didn't really care what God thought. And so Saul Saul didn't obey God. And he did what was popular in the eyes of his men but was unpopular with God. Well, at that point, by quenching the spirit, God's spirit was removed from Saul and an evil spirit came to torment him. And in that tormenting, Saul experienced paranoia and great fear, thinking that David was going to try to steal the throne from him. And so Saul began murderous threats against David to pursue him. And in the midst of that pursuit, his paranoia was so great that he even approved of the murder of 70 of God's priests in the village of Nam. Here now we see that he's descended even lower than that. He's actually turned to demonic forces. He's actually seeking help from a witch and from a spiritist who is empowered by Satan. Now, if we look at Saul's story from 1 Samuel 13, where he begins his descent today, there is one thread, one seed that that, that wanes its way all the way through this stuff that all of these things he's done has in common. And the thread is this. Disobedience and a lack of submission to authority. Disobedience and a lack of submission to authority. authority. Now, when we talk about where does the impulse for suicide come from, I'm not discounting mental illness. I'm not discounting chemical imbalances and those sorts of things. But from the Bible's point of view, the seed that grows into the tree of suicide, that seed is disobedience and a rejection of the authority that God has ordained, both in God's direct commands to Saul and in the commands God has given to Saul through the prophet Samuel. Now we find that this idea that disobedience and a lack of submission to authority is the root of these suicidal actions. We find that to be true not only in Saul's case, but throughout the scriptures when suicide is mentioned. There are actually four stories of suicide in the Bible, four times that someone's suicide is narrated for us. The first is Saul. The second is Ahithophel, a man named Ahithophel. He's found in 2 Samuel 15 through 18. The third is a man named Zimri. His story's in 1 Kings 16. And then the fourth is Judas. Samson, who we're going to talk about later, is not a suicide. And I'll explain that in a little bit. But there are four narrated cases of suicide in the Bible. And all four have this same thread running through them, the idea of disobedience and a lack of submission to authority. I've already told you Saul's story. Both Ahithophel and Zimri, in separate instances, both participate in coups against Israel's rightful king. Both of them rebel against God's anointed authority and both try to replace God's anointed authority with the person that they think should be king. In both cases, the coups fail and both Ahithophel and Zimri kill themselves as a result. The fourth case, Judas, his disobedience and lack of submission to authority is well known. Here is the very God of the universe, his creator, who has befriended him in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And Judas chooses to betray him. He refuses to submit to the authority of God. He disobeys God in the person of Jesus and turns the Lord of the universe over to his enemies. As a result, even though Judas is successful in his betrayal, it's in his success that he comes to realize his failure. But instead of humbling himself and begging God for forgiveness, Judas continues to reject God's authority and his life ends in suicide. Same thread. Disobedience and lack of submission to authority. It's a thread that runs through all of these stories and the scriptures say this is the seed that when left untented gives birth to thoughts and actions of suicide. We find this in everyday life here today too, don't we? Many of these stories we hear about young adults who have taken matters into their own hands and armed themselves and gone into schools or movie theaters or churches and killed people and then turned the guns on themselves. One common thread that they seem to all have in, together is, is a problem with authority. There seem to be some difficulties that they've had with authority in their past. But this is true not only for people who uh, are uh, deranged gunmen in this sense, but it can be true of a depressed suicidal parent who continues to dwell on negative thoughts and feelings and may even engage in negative destructive behavior in their life, trying to ease the pain through human means. And they have rejected continually God's plea to them to stop doing that and that disobedience and that lack of submission to God's authority is the seeds of the impulse where suicide comes from. This is why suicide is so closely connected to Satan. Remember what Satan's original sin is, that he disobeys God and tries to supplant him. That instead of accepting that God was the authority over Satan, Satan rebelled against God. And that's why when we go through disobedience and rebellion and a lack of submission to authority, what we're doing is we're opening the door to Satan to come in to begin to influence us. That's why he's so closely connected to suicide that in the two stories in the Bible that we know the most about the person who commits suicide, Saul and Judas, both are said to be influenced by demonic forces. That Saul, right before he commits suicide, it's not an accident that the last thing he does is turn to Satan and Satan's power in chapter 28. Same thing about Judas. We are told that at the end, before he betrayed Jesus, Satan came in and took control. That what happens is, is that when we disobey and we rebel against God's authority or the ordained authorities that God has put in place, we open the door a little bit to Satan. And Satan comes in and begins to deceive us. Remember what Jesus said about Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning. Satan's goal for every person in this room is to deceive us to death, to kill everybody. This is his way he thinks he can get back at God. And so when we open that door through disobedience and rebellion, Satan steps in and he deceives us and lies to us and begins to manipulate us. And that leads to more disobedience and more lack of submission to authority, which opens the door wider to Satan and the cycle continues. And that's what happened to Saul. Until finally he reaches this point where he chooses suicide. Where does the impulse for suicide come from? The Bible says the seeds and the root of it are in disobedience and a lack of submission to authority. 
which opens the way for us to answer the second question. Why is suicide wrong? Some will tell you that suicide is wrong because it violates the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. You say, well, murder, but maybe if you murder yourself, suicide is self-murder. I hear that, but the problem is, is that the word that's used for murder in the Ten Commandments is a word that is only ever used in the Old Testament for killing somebody else. It's never used for killing oneself. That in these stories, that word is not used. So for that reason, I think that suicide is not actually a violation of the Sixth Commandment. It's not a violation of the command, thou shalt not kill. Why then is it wrong? Well, think for a minute about some of the thoughts that are associated with suicide. Thoughts of hopelessness. Thoughts of despair. The idea that people would be better off without me. The idea that I'm a failure at life. The idea that this suffering and this pain is too much and that death would actually help everybody. That I'm a burden to everybody around me, that I'm all alone. Think about the thoughts that are going through that are associated with suicide. And the problem with those thoughts is we all have them. Every single person in this room has at some point had feelings of hopelessness or feelings of despair or discouragement or thought, man, I have really messed this up. Every single person in this room has had those thoughts. It's part of what it means to be human. Now, some of us in this room have felt those thoughts more deeply. The depths of despair, the difficulties, the pain, the hopelessness that everybody feels to some extent, some in this room have felt in the deepest possible way. But for the person who actually takes action, who allows those thoughts to drive their actions, the problem is, is that person is playing God. What I mean by that is this. God has said he is the source of all truth. When we listen to the lies in our heads that tell us that we're worthless, God is the one saying, no, you're not. You have great worth to me. When we listen to the lies that say that our life is a failure, God is saying, no, I'm the one who decides whether your life is a failure or not. When we listen to the lies about how everyone would be better off without us, God is saying, no, I created you to bless other people. When we listen to the lie that there is no hope for us, there is no forgiveness, God is saying something that's the opposite of that. And the problem is, is that when we take matters into our own hands and we believe those lies, what we're doing is choosing to replace God as the source of all truth with ourselves or someone else or Satan as the source of truth. When we choose to decide that our life has no value, what we're doing is replacing God as judge with ourselves, someone else, or with Satan. God is the one who determines if our life has value, not us. We can't look at ourselves and say, I'm worthless. That's not our call. God says, I'm the one who makes that call. That's my job. And I think you have great worth. And when we take matters into our own hands and end our life, we're trying to replace God as the giver of life with ourselves. God's the one who gives life. God's the one who sustains life. God is the one who decides when life ends. The reason why suicide is wrong 
is not because it violates the sixth commandment. The reason why suicide is wrong is because it violates the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Those who choose to act on the lies and the feelings to become judged, to become the one who decides when life ends, are basically attempting to remove God from his throne and put themselves in his place. The problem with suicide is that it's idolatry. Instead of looking to God, we look to ourselves. After all, think about the story of Saul here. Saul's in a hopeless situation. I get it. From his point of view, he tried inquiring of God. God didn't answer him. He's in the middle of the battle. He's losing. Everybody's gone. Yes, his armor bearer is there, but it's the two of them against an entire Philistine army. And the Philistine army, he knows if he's taken captive, bad things are going to happen to him. They're going to abuse him. He thinks, what hope could there possibly be? But the question is, has Saul forgotten about the story of Samson? Because Samson is almost in an identical situation. Samson, by his own foolish and sinful choices, cuts off the access to God's blessing and God's strength in his life. And Samson, who plays around with all this stuff, finds himself in a situation where he is overwhelmed by betrayal and taken into the captivity of the Philistines, who do indeed do exactly what Saul's worried about. They abuse him. They pluck out his eyes. They chain him in their temple. They throw a great party to make fun of him. This is the exact thing Saul is worried about. But what does Samson do? At the very end, he confesses to the Lord that he had messed it all up. He begs the Lord for mercy. And what does he ask God? He asks God to kill him. He asks God to give him strength one more time so that his death might not be meaningless but might have value for the kingdom. And God hears that prayer and answers. And Samson is filled with strength. And at the last moment, although he is a, a tragic hero, at the last moment, it moves from being a suicide to being the act of a martyr who gives his life. This choice was available to Saul. But instead of putting his life in God's hands like Samson did, Saul took matters into his own hands. That's why it's unfortunately not surprising that 1 Samuel ends with a suicide. All year long we've been talking about 1 Samuel being about having an undivided heart for God, which means not taking matters into your own hands. Well, suicide's just the ultimate example of that. Instead of trusting in God, instead of saying, Lord, what, Lord, I don't see hope. There is no hope here. I can't find any hope. But you're saying there's hope, so I'm going to believe. Instead of trusting in God, we take matters into our own hands. For the teenager who right now is in, in, in experiencing incredible depression and discouragement, right now, look, I know, I know that what you're hearing in your head is that your, your life is meaningless, that you'd be better off dead, that people don't really love you, that you're, you're, you're alone in the world. I know that you feel like you have no friends at school maybe or no friends at church. I, I'm not doubting that in the least. But what I'm saying to you is, is that God's saying to you, I do love you. That's right. You are not alone. I'm with you. There is hope. And that if you will leave it in God's hands, I don't know how he will rescue you. I don't. But he swore that he will. And an undivided heart says, I'm going to leave it with him. 
The same thing is true for the person who's facing a terminal illness. And the pain and the suffering has gotten so great that they think, why not just end this? Why am I going through this? What good could come of this? I don't want to be dependent on anybody else. I don't want to make my kids or my grandkids miserable or my spouse miserable. If I just ended it right now, it would all be over. It'd be better for everyone. But that's taking matters into your own hands. What God is saying is, look, you don't see the bigger picture. You don't see what I'm doing. You don't know how I want to use your struggles and your suffering. Yes, they're painful. I'm not in any way trying to say they're not. But you don't know God is saying, I want to use that to bless your spouse, to bless your kids, to bless your grandkids, that you have no idea that you enduring this suffering, how God's going to use that a year from now, five years from now, 50 years from now. Maybe you going through this is what God will use to rescue your grandchild 50 years from now. And God's saying, trust me, leave it in my hands. If you were supposed to have come to heaven, I would have taken you. I've left you here for a reason. And an undivided heart says, I don't know what it is and I don't see what it is. But I'm gonna leave the situation in God's hands. Why is suicide wrong? It's not because it's a violation of the sixth commandment. It's because God has said, you shall have no other gods, including yourself, in front of me. Third question. Is suicide an unpardonable sin? The answer is no. It's bad, but it's not unpardonable. I do think it's interesting that Saul's epitaph, what's written about him after he died from the bigger picture, does not mention suicide. His epitaph is found in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verses 13 and 14. And this is what the author of Chronicles under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says as he looks back on Saul's life with the wide angle lens. Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance. And Saul did not inquire of the Lord. Suicide is only mentioned there under the broader category of being unfaithful to the Lord. That at the end of the day, suicide is not the single defining feature of Saul's life. It's bad. It's terrible. But with a little perspective, the person who's writing Chronicles says, look, the bigger deal was that Saul was unfaithful. And that in many ways, suicide was simply the final step in a journey that began with unfaithfulness. That began with no longer inquiring of the Lord, but looking to yourself After all, we believe that there's nothing that God can't forgive. There's only one unpardonable sin, and that is refusing to accept Jesus Christ as Lord. That God has forgiven us in Christ for all our sins, past, present, and future. Now, you may say, but the problem with suicide is you can't ask for forgiveness. You can't confess that sin. That's true. But there are other sins that we can't confess before we die. For example, I can imagine a situation where someone has uh, interpersonal conflict that they're responsible for and they have bitterness in their heart and they've not gone and asked for forgiveness and they're the victim of a sudden heart attack. They don't have a chance to deal with that sin. I can think of a situation where a Christian on their deathbed 
instead of trusting in God, begins to doubt and descends into despair at the moment of their dying and their death, and they're simply overcome by fear and anxiety, and they don't have a chance to confess that to the Lord. But the thing is, we're not judged by works, but by God's grace. And Jesus' grace covers all our sins, even the ones we haven't had the chance to actually confess yet. For this reason, I actually think that Saul's in heaven. Now, you may disagree with me, but think about this for a minute. Saul was chosen by God to be Israel's king. And we have told to us in the stories of Scripture that God used Saul in a mighty way. He started off as a superstar king, full of the Spirit. I'm not talking about somebody who's just a great general or or leads people to lots of victory. It said that Saul was among the prophets, that God's Spirit came upon Saul in such a powerful way that he used Saul for great things, and Saul brought the people to the place of worshiping God. You can't do that if you're not connected to the Lord. You're not able to do that in that way. That's why I think it's so important to talk about suicide from the story of Saul. Because we actually know enough about his life to be able to go all the way back and say, but wait a second, he started off full of the Spirit. As a prophet speaking the words of the Lord. And so while I might be wrong, I think Saul's actually in heaven. If I am wrong, and he's not in heaven, it won't be because he committed suicide. And so the question, is suicide an unpardonable, unforgivable sin? I think the answer is a resounding no. It can be forgiven. Which leads us to the fourth question. What are the implications for you and I today? Well, first, to those who are here for whom suicide is not Uh, something you have an emotional connection to. There's not been a close loved one that's gone through it. You're not experiencing that depth of despair or hopelessness in your own life. Let me again say thank God for that. Praise the Lord for that. That's God's blessings. That's great. But there is a warning here. And the warning to you and I, if you're in that situation, is take heed lest you also fall. In 1 Corinthians, as Paul is going through these Old Testament stories, he's saying, look, the reason God told us the story of Saul is so we might realize this could happen to us too. And you say, well, I don't have any thoughts of suicide. I'm glad for that. Neither did Saul in 1 Samuel 13. He had no idea that's where this path was going to go. That in 1 Samuel 13, when he first gave in to insecurity and arrogance, he had no idea it was going to end in suicide. But Paul tells us in Romans 6 that even as believers... Whoever chooses to sin becomes a slave of sin. And the wages of sin is death. That's a a passage of scripture written to believers. Paul's trying to say, why don't you want to sin? It's not because God won't forgive you, he will. The reason you don't want to sin is it sets you on a path where sin and Satan begin to dominate your decisions. And nobody thinks 1 Samuel 13 is going to end up in 1 Samuel 31. Nobody thinks that. But the wages of sin is death. This is the point. Obedience leads to life. Disobedience leads to death. It's always true. And the warning for you and I is, look, if you're involved in an adulterous relationship, please don't make the mistake of thinking that won't end in suicide. You're right, it might not. 
but it very well might. Because the wages of sin is death. If you're allowing bitterness to, 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 to stay in your heart, please don't be so foolish as to think this could never end in suicide. It might not. But it might. Because the wages of sin is always death. Please don't think that if you stab your coworker in the back at work to get ahead, that that could never actually lead to suicide. It might not, but it very well might. The wages of sin is always death. And what Romans 6 is saying, look, you think when you open that door, you're gonna be able to control what comes walking through, and you're not. And all Satan needs is that opening that unconfessed sin, that disobedience, that lack of submission to authority, yes, it may take some time, but this is where that road leads. And whether it's destruction in the form of suicide or destruction in some other form, God is very serious, destruction is coming. And so the warning to you and I is, is praise the Lord if suicide's not right on our radar this morning. But please, be warned from the life of Saul. This is where this path goes. Second, if you're here and you do have a loved one who's committed suicide, you have a close friend, and as I've been talking, this has caused memories and, and, and painful things to come up. I want you to know, first of all, that if that person was a genuine believer, they're in heaven. That if they showed signs and the evidence of the Spirit, I'm not talking about somebody who just says, yes, when I was five years old, I asked Jesus into my heart. That's great. I'm talking about somebody who, like Saul, shows the evidence of the Spirit. That even in Saul's life, as he was descending into chaos, there were still glimpses of conviction when David confronted him. And Saul said, you're right, David, I shouldn't be doing this. And there were times where he acknowledged God's plan. There were signs of the Spirit even then. That if your loved one was a genuine believer, that suicide did not separate them from the love of God. Remember, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Also, you need to know that whenever a suicide or something like that happens, the question inevitably arises. What if I had done more? What if I had made that extra phone call? What if I had said something? What if I, I saw some things? What if I did something? What if I just, what if I was there? What if I hadn't been out of town when that happened? What if I had gone over there? What if I had just said one more thing? What I want you to realize this morning is that just like in Saul's life, the disobedience and the lack of submission to authority opens the doorway to some powers greater than you to come in. And that your loved one who committed suicide was not fully in control of their actions anymore. Now, I'm not, I'm not exonerating. I'm not saying that they're not responsible. But I'm saying at this point in Saul's life, Satan is so far in the mix that it's difficult to sort out who's actually making these decisions and who's not. And look, Saul was warned. David warned him multiple times, Saul, you're on the wrong road. This leads to death. His own son, Jonathan, tried to warn him. Even the armor bearer who's there at the last moment in his own way is trying to warn him. And so please, I'm not saying don't warn, I'm not. But I'm saying ultimately, Saul's not listening to anybody warning him. Saul's listening only to Satan at this point. And then I'm here to tell you, if you've done what God asked you to do, 
the fact that you're on vacation when it happened, the fact that you didn't make that second phone call, that's not the responsibility of why this happened. I do also want you to know that if you have experienced a suicide of someone very close to you, this is a doorway that Satan is using potentially to affect you. And what we don't realize is that sin brings death, but it brings death often to people just around the person who's sinning. Saul's armor bearer dies. Saul's sons die because of Saul's choice. And some of the irrational fears and discouragement and anxiety you may be experiencing may be a result of spiritual warfare that that suicide opened the door for. I just want to tell you that we, we have experience dealing with this kind of situation. We've got people on our staff who can help you. And this morning, they'll be available down front to pray over you, to pray with you, to talk about the fact that maybe you've never actually dealt with that suicide of that loved one. Yes, you may be over it in some sort of sense, but not realize that Satan is using that to get to you and that he's using that to fire his arrows at you. There can be freedom from that with God. It can be, it can be completely taken care of and that door can be slammed shut and bolted. We can help you with that. Finally, if you're here this morning and you are experiencing suicidal thoughts or you know someone who's experiencing suicidal thoughts, I think this whole sermon, this whole service, this whole Sunday is specifically for you. Please hear what I'm saying. The voice in your head telling you to hurt yourself or others is not God's voice. I promise you on my life, that is not God's voice. He is not telling you to do that. He will never tell you to do that. That voice in your head telling you you have no value, that the world would be better off without you, that is a lie from Satan. I promise you God would never say that to you. What God says to you is that he loves you, that God sees you, that there is hope. You do have value. The fact that you're here this morning is God said, I wouldn't let you walk over that cliff. I brought you here to bring you back from the edge. Please hear what I'm saying. You're going to walk out these doors and Satan is going to come after you again. But right here, right now, in God's presence, if your heart is stirring, if there's anything moving, if your heart is racing, God's saying to you, it's you I'm talking to right now. It's not the pastor talking, it's me talking. And God's saying, I love you. I gave my son to die for you. You have value. Even if nobody else recognizes it, I recognize it. I mean, look at the difference between Saul and David at this point. Remember, these two guys are going through the exact same thing, just on different sides of the border. David has taken matters into his own hands. He's made a lot of bad decisions, and he has completely messed it all up. His men have turned on him. His wives are gone. All his money is gone. People want to kill him. He's hated by everybody, and God has disappeared from his life. He is absolutely distressed, alone, in the deepest pits of despair. It's the same place Saul is. He's all alone. He thinks everybody has abandoned him. He thinks God has abandoned him, just like David thinks. The only difference between David and Saul is that David found strength in the Lord. And look, I know that you're right at the edge. I know that you feel like nobody knows the hopelessness and the despair that you're in. I believe you. I know that I can't relate to it, but Jesus can. He sees you. You are his child. He's given his life willingly for you. Just like David, all you have to do is decide I'm going to find my hope in the Lord and not take matters into my own hands. And if you do, God will pull you back from the edge. 
God will rescue you. It's never too late. Remember the thief on the cross. This guy had messed up his whole life. He's moments from death. And at that point, he says, Lord, remember me. That's all he says. Just remember me. And God says, I do remember you. And you're going to be with me today in paradise. It's never too late. There's always hope. And if you're hearing my voice this morning, there's hope. Please, please. After the service, when I sent out this topic in email and asked the elders and the staff to pray for this, people volunteered and said, I want to be there to talk to anybody. We're going to have people down front here from our staff and from our elder board, people who have attempted suicide, people who have loved ones that have committed suicide, people that understand the depths of despair. They're, they volunteered. Elders and staff who said, I will be there. I'll stay as long as it takes. Please come down afterwards. Come and talk to somebody. Yes, I may not know exactly what you're going through, but we have every situation here on our staff of people who have gone through anything that you've gone through. Please don't walk out these doors back into the environment where Satan has more power. While you're here this morning, if God's stirring in your heart, if right now your heart is racing saying, I do have to go down for come, let us talk to you. Come, let us pray over you. Look, everybody has feelings of hopelessness and despair. And when Satan begins to bring that huge weight on your shoulders, please let us help you with it, please. Let's pray together. Lord, we've done what you've asked us to do. And now it's your turn. God, this is your word. These are your people. Lord, you have said that you love them, that you will never leave them for, for, nor forsake them. God, now is the time. Now is the time for you to speak. Now is the time for you to move in their hearts. Now is the time for you to set them free from Satan's power. Lord God, like that thief on the cross, like David in the wilderness, Lord, let them find strength in you. Remember them, oh God, please God, remember them. Nothing can separate them from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Lord, now is the time. Come up off that throne and come and rescue them. Lord, come and bring comfort. Clear away the confusion. Oh Lord God, please Lord, rise up and act. We're waiting for you. Amen.